Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Soren Pislaru, chair of the Division of Structural Heart Disease, as well as echocardiographer and expert imager. And today we're going to talk about 3D imaging and its pertinence to the management of patients today in terms of making diagnoses and guiding procedures. So first of all, Dr. Pizzleru, thank you for joining me. Paul, thank you so much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to talk about 3D. I'm a little obsessed about that particular topic, <laughs> uh, but, but I guess it goes with the territory, you know. It's very exciting. Now, this is a podcast, and so I just want our listeners to know that we will have images available as well. When they first join the podcast, they may want to look at those. And in the meantime, we'll also describe it. But why don't we start with just some of the basics? And that is, you know, technological breakthroughs, we like to think that they're rapidly adopted in clinical practice. That is, is a, a big advance. It helps us. We use it right away. But that may not be the case. What's been the experience in imaging? Well, so so I'm going to talk about echo. You know, you have lemons, you make lemonade. So it's it's a topic familiar to me, and and really it goes to show that not everything that's new and shiny it's instantly recognized as being of value. So if you look back, it's in 1953 that Edler, who's physician interested in mitral stenosis talks with Hertz, who happens to have two uh, Nobel Prize winners in his family, uh, and who's an engineer, a physicist, and uh, they talk about uh, imaging the heart, and they that's the first time an M mode was done in 1953. And then as soon as they developed the technology, kind of goes on uh, life support. It's, you know, people are not really interested in that. It's presented, but no, no embracing. And it takes to 1965 when uh, Harvey Feigenbaum starts being interested in echocardiography in the U.S., it's just then that the technology takes off. And for 2D, it's kind of the same story. Early 70s, they start developing these imaging tools, and the first attempts are, are really giving cut and paste a new meaning, because it's literally a 35-millimeter film that's cut in stripes. So, so it's an M-mode film that's synchronized and cut, and you have these tiny little thin slices that you put together, and that reproduce a 2D image. For our listeners, before we get too far, I just want to underscore, if you can't see the images right now, the first one is striking because it looks a little bit like a Rorschach pattern. There are two clouds of white separated, which will later be an M mode with cardiac contraction. And the initial 2D images as well require substantial expert interpretation. And there's a great distance between what's displayed and what any of us would think of as a heart. And which may perhaps lead to the delay in their adoption. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to make sure people could appreciate what we're looking no. at. No, absolutely, you know. Uh, and the, really, the, the 2D wouldn't have taken off if people didn't have this initiative of modifying an electric toothbrush to, to create the first transducer that's usable to generate a 2D image. And that's back in 1975-76 by Eggleton and Wyman, but it still takes about 10 years to the 80s for 2D to be embraced. And the story with 3D is just about the same. So two groups, one at Duke, one in Rotterdam, and they both have 3D technology in the early 90s, 90s 
1991 and 1994. But it's mid-2000 by the time Technology is embraced. So I would say technology-wise in ECHO, it's the rule of tens. You report it, it's 10 years before people start realizing what, uh, what that's good. And maybe it's a little bit of, of the story of uh, Henry Ford, you know, uh, if people asked him what they want, they would say, if he would ask his customers what they want, they would say they need a faster horse. Right. So maybe maybe it's the same with, uh, with cardiologists all over the place, you know, people don't understand the value of things first, first time on. We live in a 3D world that's in constant motion. Should our imaging tools be in 3D? What are the practical advantages of 3D? I mean, to me, everything should be 3D. But the question is, can you implement that in everything and, and everywhere? And of course, cost is an issue. Availability is an issue. Standardization is an issue. But but the field has progressed so much over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And, and really, if you look at the rendered image that, um, that the group in Rotterdam produced in 1994, it's kind of a grainy scale image. It's just you can see some 3D rendering. You can sense there's a three-dimensionality to the to the image but it's really uh, only the development of uh, of rendering technologies to to bring out the information that's hidden in the 3D data set that existed there in 1990 and existed uh, there today. And I, I have to say, you know, I wish that we could claim we're all great inventors and developers, but the reality, this is all driven by by the gaming industry. So each time your, your kid asks to, to buy them a Nintendo or PlayStation, just buy that. You contributing to developing med medical technologies of the future, you know? So it's important to do that. So yeah, that, that makes a huge difference. What are some of the practical advantages? Uh, I, I want to just delve into that a little bit more. And, and again, for our listeners, what we're looking at is a crude early still 3D image on the left. And on the right, we see an active mitral valve. And in one view, we see a regurgitation a little bit via Doppler. And What's striking is that it's an anatomical view, in some ways better than what a surgeon would see, because you actually see it in its functionality. And uh, it is a, a striking and compelling image. What do you think it will help us do that we can't do now? Why do we um, need to learn to use it? And um, then I'll ask you about the learning curve. If you're an imager now, how hard is it to learn to acquire these gorgeous images? Because I can tell you, for the non-imager, it's immediately more accessible and intuitive. You can see the valve. You can imagine where murmurs are coming from and where their lesions. So uh, tell me about the impact on patients. I think I think you know once you start seeing anatomy in uh, in its reality you can uh, do two things first of all you can understand just what you said where does the murmur come from so so we we have a flail mitral valve so that's uh, on the video and you can clearly see that the involved uh, leaflet is the posterior one it's a middle scallop so you can tell the surgeon before they go on uh, pump uh, that's where the lesion is and our surgeons really appreciate that we do that in every single patient. But more importantly now for the cat lab procedures, you know, because you need to show exactly where the, the problem is located. Um, a lot of things that we can measure these days that are going to be important in deciding what kind of uh, uh, intervention you're going to make. 
And as uh, as for the experience, how long does it take to learn how to image in 3D? It's shorter and shorter. The good thing is that the, the technologies have developed so much, the, the software uh, and the hardware on existing scanners have progressed so much over the last few years that what it took, a lot of experience, a lot of fine tuning, now it's available at your fingertips. So you just hit a button and it's going to happen. Uh, so, so it's becoming less of an issue. I encourage everybody, just hit the button for 3D and you'll see what happens. You may be mesmerized. <laughs> These certainly are readily accessible images. The, the, the power is huge. It's true that they, they if a picture paints a thousand words, a video paints you know, so many more times that. There have been some challenges raised in terms of cost and accessibility. Um, do you want to address those? Who pays for the, the you know more expensive equipment? Is, does it impact the cost of procedures and how widespread are these tools at the present time? So we we perform 3D in almost every single transesophageal echocardiogram that we do today. We try to perform a 3D imaging not for for beautiful pictures but for quantitation in most of our transthoracic studies. So everybody is kind of slowly moving to towards that. And the reason for that is it's not try to to increase the cost or pass the cost to anybody. It's just there's additional information in the 3D space that you do not have with a 2D. And more importantly, there's accuracy in the 3D measurements that is uh, uh, superior to the accuracy of measurements in 2D. So, so that's the reason to do it. Now, who should pay for that? For now, there is actually um, a covered uh, 3D reimbursement uh, code for echocardiograms if there is a very specific indication. And one of the indications that's, uh, that's accepted is for assessing uh, mitral regurgitation that is otherwise not uh, being well assessed by, by 2D technology. So there is... Uh, reimbursement in, in place. Now, availability, yes, there's cost with every new scanner, but but as with, uh, you know, everything that's computer related, the costs come to be lower and lower as the, the new generation of scanners are being developed. So it becomes more affordable. We've, we've also seen that with enhanced imaging in a number of procedures get transformed from overnight hospital stay to same day dismissal. I'm thinking of somewhere instead of TEE, we're using transthoracic or intracardiac echo. Um, so just to reinforce your comments, that as the technology becomes more widespread, we get better at what we do with the imaging, guiding procedures, for example. What's the future of this technology? Where, where does it go um, once we start to learn how to use it? Well, so so several several places that that you can use it. So you know, we we had um, actually uh, when uh, when I first uh, started 3D imaging uh, in the cat lab, we had uh, Macalid, uh, uh, who's one of our interventionists, tell us what they want, what he wants for for measurements before a transcatheter edge repair or clipping of the mitral valve, and he he was very very uh, casual about giving us about 20 parameters that he wanted measured, and I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness. Great you're not going to get that Mac, just get two or three. But what if, what if the 3D technology can do that automatic, uh, automatically for you? And really the current platforms from many vendors, it's not just one single vendor that uh, that we have, they are really fast. So, so I had one of our nurses record me how long it takes to get the full measured mitral valve. It's about 20 some seconds. And I, I would argue that it can be done even faster than that in a so, very, very so predictable fashion. What kind of measurements? Can you give me some specific examples? I think people want to understand just the amount of insight you can get. And again, if you can see 
the screen or if you look at it afterwards, very compelling, very easy to see um, valves in motion. But what what are the the measurements? So, so for instance, if you're looking at transcatheter edge repair, we understood fairly early on that you can make the valve stenotic if you're not careful with that. And right. one of the things we do measure is the mitral valve opening area. One of the things we are interested when we're going to the prosthesis is the mitral valve annulus area. So, mm -hmm. so you can you can get those. Leaflet length is important. The angle between the aortic valve and the mitral anterior mitral leaflet. So all these things take time. They take time if you were to measure them in independently on, on a workstation, but the software nowadays actually provides them to you in one single swoop, and that's fantastic. The other, the other thing that, that we understand is, is the dynamics of the valves, you know, so, so it turns out that the, both the mitral and tricuspid annulus uh, move in time. So with systole, there's contraction, and with diastole, there's relaxation, and that ensures competence. So that's an important thing to understand, and you wouldn't be able to do that unless you do have the measurement to provide that. Just eyeballing an image is not going to cut it. So really, it's a combination of qualitative human education, because I just looking at these images, I can immediately understand and comprehend what the valve is doing, but also automated numerous measurements that help us identify who should be treated surgically versus percutaneously, and then when percutaneously, what tools, sizes, the deployment angles. It is impressive. Oh, I, and and I, you're now showing us you've switched to a virtual world where you are immersed in a 3D environment, which is also very impressive looking. Do you want to comment on this? I mean, to, to me, this is the future, really, Paul, because, because that opens tremendous opportunities for us. You know, all the measurements we have uh, in, uh, in uh, the echocardiography are based on 2D, or you go into the 3D data set and you cut it in multiplane, and that's, that's laborious. It takes time. Uh, and we have those gorgeous 3D rendered pictures, but, but if you think about it, your display is a 2D image, no matter which way you cut it, no matter how beautiful it looks, it's still a 2D space. So you cannot select uh, points in a 2D space. You need to be in the 3D space, and that's where the VR uh, becomes very important. And not only that, but but I think it's not only the diagnosis, it's also the intervention. This is a company we're working with who has this, um, this holographic display that you can use during a procedure. It could be during an ablation, which should sound pretty good to you, Paul, mm -hmm. uh, or it can be during a left atrial appendage occlusion or maybe uh, during a procedure on the tricuspid or the mitral valve. And that's fantastic addition to what you can do uh, in the lab. And then if you move- So let me, let me just pause for a second. Again, for people who can't see what's happening, we're seeing a procedure where someone is wearing lenses and they have an augmented reality, meaning they see the real world and superimposed on it, they're seeing either an EP map or 3D renderings of the heart. And with gestures in the air, they're wearing sterile gloves. They're manipulating and controlling images to understand anatomy and the positions of catheters relative to the anatomy. Really stunning. And this is in a real world case. This is not a simulation, but an actual video. It is the sort of thing that lets a proceduralist see what's happening in the body without opening the body obvious how these sorts of uh, capabilities could lead to advances. And you can only imagine how you would apply that to, to teaching, to, to uh, telemedicine. Yeah. You know, you could be sitting in your office, in your virtual office, or 
regular office and and help somebody do a procedure you know 1000 miles or 10000 miles away for that matter and and just show them how to tweak and how to turn and how to rotate it's uh, i i think really this is technology of the future and um, and maybe it's going to take 10 years to embrace it the rules of tens right but uh, but it's coming just but it's very very impressive very intuitive and you know the images that are generated how is it impacting medical education? Our current fellows are generating 3D images. They're comfortable with the technology. Many times our, our 3D fellows are the first ones who run with it, you know. So you you would see some of uh, our uh, colleagues who maybe are less uh, attuned to doing uh, 3D imaging uh, work with our fellows. And the fellow is like, oh, we need to get that 3D of the mitral valve. That's going to be cool. So 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 I think... I think um, Younger people tend to to have a more open mind. They are less bound to tradition, and then they are more easily to to embrace um, technological advances. Really, that's that's my my take on on the whole topic. Very exciting! Really, a glimpse of both the future and where the present meet the future to help us better diagnose and treat disease in less invasive, more convenient, uh, lower risk ways for patients. Having seen this in countless procedures from left atrial appendage occlusion to mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis and many more. Thank you so much for uh, sharing this with us. Fascinating topic. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much, Paul. And and again, you know, send us emails, send us comments. If you if you have questions about 3D, we're always, always very happy to, to assist with, uh, with anything and everything that, that you may find useful for you. And as you logged into the podcast, there should be access to the images and videos, which really tell so much of the story. So I'd encourage you to take a minute and look at them. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.